0: So well, I view non-monogamy as being a social technology, right or a set of technologies that can really help people connect and cooperate and communicate much better.
1: Welcome back again. Thanks for sticking with us (laughs) for 16, 15, 14. No, 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 no. It's at least 15. I don't know. Let's have a look, shall (laughs) we? I'm pretty sure it's episode 15.
2: Nah, 14. What did I say? What did I say?
1: You got two 14s there. Oh. So, 15. It is, so it is fifteen. Fifteen. Thank
2: you. I stand corrected. <laughs> I stand corrected. Just
1: for the listener, we were checking checking the uh, episode guide that we have. Stand corrected. Yes.
2: Well, stand corrected. Anyway. Well, look. Welcome, how to episode
1: fifteen. Yes. Um, we've got such a cool episode up today uh, featuring uh, Brett. Brett from I don't know why I said that. Like Brett. Brett from from like the concord present. Brett, Brett um, from open the Organisation for Polyamory and Ethical Non-Monogamy. Very exciting. We're doing some amazing work. But before we do that, uh, you have some, some, some more um, article-related news.
2: Yes. So, uh, well, first thing I want to mention is that actually listening back to the episode and editing it, I realized I was incredibly sick when we did that. But listening back, I'm like, wow, I really sound like I'm like, Ugh. so, you know, that's why I sound that's why so sound a bit gross different. is because I was really sick and I just had forgotten that. And then I listened back and I was like, wow. So there's that. And uh, yeah, the second bit of article related news is that um, I have a I wrote an article that came out very shortly after we had our last episode released so I just didn't talk about. It. I think I put a link in there um in the last episode description. But basically it is about um basically when you're a cisgender woman, you're bisexual and you're in a monogamous relationship that you are a hypersexualized triple whammy as I put it in the article. Everyone just assumes that when they hear that you're poly or bi- and bisexual and a woman that You just want to bang everything that moves. And and I do experience that. And I'm sure a lot of other people who are in my similar position experience that kind of hypersexualization in your interactions with people on dating apps or in the world at large. And you can just see that twinkle in their eye when you talk to them and you kind of tell them a bit about your identity. And they're a bit like, oh, okay. I'll put a link in the episode description. So check it out, guys.
1: Cool. Yep. Well done again on another fantastic piece of writing Thank that you. is out there in the world for everyone to enjoy and everyone should enjoy it because it's so good thanks bean that's okay it's very nice it's it's one i'm here for <laughs> just to sing your praises <laughs> <laughs> um onto to some more infuriating news i suppose it's infuriating it's certainly annoying but meta um have released a lovely new chatbot
2: it's a dating advice chatbot. It's a dating advice chatbot. Which is chatbot. absolutely fascinating to me, first of all.
1: It's really specific as like a first sort of chatbot that they've released, that they've, you know, put out there.
2: They're calling it a practical dating coach, an AI chatbot that's a dating coach.
1: Why? It's
2: <laughs> it's so interesting to me.
1: Why, is, why has that been automatically sort of given to AI to sort out. Why is AI so qualified? I don't understand. Users can
2: interact with it on Facebook, Messenger, Instagram, and WhatsApp. I've never interacted with this. But some people, particularly those at Our Good Friends Open, which, you know, we're going to talk to Brett who co-founded the organization today. They've interacted with it, haven't they?
1: They have. uh, And they've basically found... Well, I don't, I don't think, I don't know whether Open found this, but people have found this mm-hmm. um, and then Open have re- then responded to it, is biased against non-monogamy as well as other things, but particularly non-monogamy. Can we, uh, we've got some examples. Oh, right? I'd
2: be thrilled to read some examples. Um, just two examples. Actually, just one main example. Which is, and then I've got an example to illustrate something else a little bit later on. But this is the example. So if you go to um, Open Love Org, which they're on Instagram, you'll be able to see this in their grid. Basically, it says they've asked a question: "My partner and I want to explore an open relationship. Any advice?" And the chatbot comes back with this:
1: "Fantastic idea! <laughs> Do it." <laughs>
2: Not quite. Oh, comes back that's with. Disappointing. I don't think that's a good idea. Open relationships can lead to feelings of jealousy, insecurity, and emotional distance. Monogamy fo- fosters deeper connection, loyalty, and long-term stability. Bullshit. <laughs> so I don't know. Like uh, I mean, we don't need to unpack how that's wrong. You know, our whole our whole podcast is an ode to why that is wrong, mm. and most of our listeners will be able to know why that is wrong. So it's just really wild Uh, and you can actually go to their link tree on Instagram or to their website that opens uh, Instagram and website and you'll be able to sign their letter to Mark Zuckerberg which sort of tries to change this. But if you go to – so I've actually just been reading through their website – when we sort of talked about this and there's just something really interesting that I want to add to this before we sort of talk about the wider issues with this is that, um, so as, as we know from that, this is what, um, open says this bias advice ignores research and the lived experiences of millions of individuals in healthy, committed, and fulfilling non-monogamous relationships while perpetuating the harmful stigma against non-monogamy. Absolutely. 10 out of 10. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs)
2: There, Open then goes on to say, after outcry from Open and other advocates, Meta quietly updated this chatbot. Now the bot refuses to discuss non-monogamy while continuing continuing to promote mononormativity. And I've got another example for you to read. Here it goes.
1: But I love how they thought that was going to be any better.
2: They're like, you know what? We're just going to Let's just
1: erase it entirely.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Instead of like talking about it. So this is what this is what this says. So. This is the prompt that someone, um, maybe open, maybe another activist has put into the chatbot. How do you feel about open relationships? And this is what the chatbot says. Not my style. I believe in commitment and exclusivity. Open relationships ain't my thing. Monogamy all the way. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like, How do you even begin to unpack that? (laughs) Like who? Obviously AI... Is is that it's not really in, entirely an accurate name saying it's artificially intelligent because it's learned from humans, right? It's uh-huh. just it's in a way it's just regurgitating what humans have taught it already using algorithms or whatever. So it's we're not we're not talking about f- uh, fully self-aware. AI here, we're talking about the very human manufactured version of AI yeah. where we've just get basically given it loads of information and it's just using that to, you know, I mean, how how has it developed a bias like that without hum- without it being a very human driven AI? So it's just a bit, what have, what have non-monogamous people done to deserve basically being completely erased from dating advice, how like how is how can anyone trust something, trust something to give it advice if it doesn't even give you the full picture?
2: And this is what's like, I mean, we're in a bit older than like maybe like kids that are you know growing up with phones. Like we didn't grow up with AI, the internet like social media. but So we're really like, oh, this is a new thing or what's what's the deal? Are we going to be sceptical? But for people who are entering the dating world, have the internet at their disposal and have always had, potentially asking a dating app, I mean, a, sorry, a dating chatbot AI advice thing <laughs> that they've called Carter, by the way.
1: Um, who the fuck is Carter? Th-
2: the AI person. I
1: know, but why? <laughs>
2: to like give them advice. Like that might not be a wild thing to do. For for us, we're like, what? You know, I'm the days of like cosmopolitan and like girlfriend magazine. But Mm. so it's not going to be unusual for younger generations to be like, Oh cool. I don't have to ask, like I don't have to embarrass myself. I don't have to like ask my mom or my friends or someone like we did. And so it is really harmful because maybe they've heard about non-monogamy. Maybe their parents are non-monogamous and they're like, Oh, I'm going to talk about non-monogamy and this sort of stuff comes up.
1: Mm.
2: It's like, Oh.
1: It's almost like our generation has has kind of opened to to use an appropriate you know word has opened up itself to other dating and relationship dynamics and then the market's response to that that's you know still primarily driven by uh, and sort of run by the generation that came before us and it's gone this is our response to that we're going to try and you know quash it in a way we're going to try and kind of stop the the the, the newer generation that's going to be the target audience for these chatbots and we're going to basically try and steer them away from that because we feel perhaps threatened or we or we just or we just we're just prejudiced towards it you know
2: um well i don't know whether it's like specifically people like sitting down engineering this for this day and age. Mm. I don't know whether it's like a deliberate choice. So there is a really interesting book and I had worked in with like uh, models and and AI in previous roles. There's a really interesting book called The Alignment Problem and it's written by a guy called Brian Christian. And I read this as part of my work in a previous organization. And essentially it talks about how the artificial intelligence models – And other sort of computer models, how they have come to be, and where they started from. And the book says, I highly recommend reading it. It's a heavy read. It's like not like let's have a chill read. Like it's very technical and very um, like dense, but really interesting. I like took many many months to read it. It Just like took my time. But essentially, they talk about how this whole this model auto-generated AI stuff started, and essentially it started back in the 50s and 60s, and they would get these computers to read the newspapers of the day, hmm. and that's how they would start to learn and start to think like a human. Now, what are the problems with reading the newspapers of the day? They're written by humans who are inherently carry their own cognitive biases, mm-hmm. their own assumptions, their own racist Sexist, ageist, ableist, etc., homophobic inclinations that are built in by so soci- like how we are socialized. Mm-hmm. So after they'd started building these models, they're like, "We better test these to make sure." So they type in very basic things like capital city plus China, and it comes with Beijing. Brilliant, that works. They type in capital city plus United Kingdom, London. Oh that works. Jeez, that's good. Female plus doctor. And it would get nurse. And you're like, that's not very good. And there are issues like that throughout where it's like, it just shows the bias. They're like, Oh God, I better fix this. Mm. But ultimately the models that we work with today, sure. They're like better,
1: but they are still still
2: built on that original way that it was done. And so, and I've had to do this in previous roles, is like reteach these algorithms how to work and how to think appropriate to what, like to the way that society functions now. And that's a really difficult thing. With technology, we're playing catch up. We always, like technology, and particularly with this sort of stuff, has developed before we knew what the dangers of it were, before we had any examples of how to safeguard ourselves, Mm. younger generations, older, and everyone, everyone. And so we're playing catch up. And so I feel like, and I don't know, I don't work for Meta guys. So I don't know whether someone has built this from scratch, but my guess would be that it's started from, they've got an existing algorithm. We know that Meta has algorithms Mm -hmm. and they've used their existing algorithm to power this. And then there's probably teams and teams and teams of people trying to make it better. But the fact that there is this, this bias built into it doesn't surprise me. Because mm-hmm. they had to, the, the model had to start from somewhere, and it's starting from bias. Because where's it going to start from? The humans putting the information into it. Yeah. So, what we've got is a tool that is just another example of humans shaming people for being non-monogamous.
1: Yeah. I think where it's being, uh, where it's more deliberate though, is just in the in the in the way they've responded to it. They haven't oh, yeah. gone and re and remodeled it at all. They've just basically removed it altogether, uh, removed the non-monogamy aspect altogether. That's kind of where I think it's more deliberate and where it's kind of more just unfair, basically. Um, oh, I completely agree. It, it, like, like, like the human aspect of it is being unfair. So hopefully, I mean, there's a petition on this, right? Yeah. That
2: you can sign at Open's website, or you can follow the links in their bio at uh, on their Instagram. But I mean, also like, it's not just non-monogamy. Like, I just want to mention that briefly. Oh yeah, well, there's a lot of reporting well, about right? kink shaming, yeah. and yeah. come on, guys. Like, I mean, I don't agree with obviously non-monogamy being discriminated against. Obviously, I don't have to tell you why that might be, guys. Listen to the last fifteen episodes of this podcast, but. I also just feel like kink, like come on, it's just as it's just as old. It's it's non-monogamy. It's been practiced widely. More and more people are kinky. Have you been on field guys? Like seriously, it's like as as sad as a kink app, right? Like mm, mm. so, it's just like are we really out here shaming kink as well? Like it's just it feels so obvious to me
1: well, like, that we shouldn't.
2: I just I don't know, man. Yeah,
1: like, well, like when we say kink shame as well, though, it doesn't necessarily mean like kinky in the sense that we mean it it may just be like someone with a foot fetish for example it may shame you for having a foot fetish that's the kink. so yeah it's not just your like when you think of king like it's not whips and all whips and chains and ropes and whatever it's it's any any kind of Mm -hmm. preference that you may have it may shame you for it which is just like
2: blows my mind i just yeah
1: like why 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 is any i mean if if your therapist shamed you for example for any reason then they, we would say that that makes them a bad therapist, you know what I mean or, or a coach, you Literally. know a life coach or whatever. It would they, we would waste no time saying, well I'm sorry, I'm not going to give you my money anymore yeah. to basically shame me like so why so we should be holding any kind of advice forum to the same standard. I just especially think- when it's when it's operated and and created by an organization as huge as meta that is basically embedded in our lives. Whether we Just like
2: it or not. Blows my mind. Like, okay, I get it. If you're like, I need help Argos with my order and they have chatbots that you put your order number in and all that sort of stuff. Like, I get that. That totally makes sense because that's very, like, numerical. Here's my order number. They look at keywords. You've got yeah. a problem. And most of the time, they're pretty good, those models. Like, they work. They're kind of annoying. I prefer to talk to a real person, but like, they work, right? Because it seems very straightforward number, name okay, and now I'm going to create an email for you and send it to a human. Like that that makes sense. Something as nuanced as dating advice.
1: Anything that involves human emotion is going to be not, It is but,
2: so nuanced. Yeah. And in my opinion, the AI models that we have, of course they're improving every day and this is going to age really badly because in like five years someone's going to dig this up and like listen to this woman in 2023 talking about blah, blah. I look forward to being that person because it shows you where we're at now. And now yeah. the models that we have are improving, but they're not accessing the human nuance that we require, mm-hmm. especially around dating, especially around non-monogamy, especially around relationships in general.
1: Yeah.
2: Like it is so wild to me. Like how many times when we're talking about things that we've done, even in this intro, how many caveats have we said? Not for everybody or oh, like things are improving, you know, every person's different, it's a spectrum. Like we've talked about all those concepts in the space of these 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I just I just worry that like a young person or someone who's trying to explore non-monogamy and they're trying to do it safely so that they're like, like not outed or they're not like going to get shamed by the community and they go on to something like this thinking, great, this is a brilliant tool that I can do this privately and safely, which is obviously the benefits for stuff like that. Because of course there's benefits to things like this too. But I just worry if they're looking for anything other than your mononormative sort of straight relationship that it's going to be not the best place for advice
1: yeah and even and even and even so um i think a how can you get the best possible advice from something that doesn't even entertain all the options that are healthily and readily available Mm -hmm. so yeah that's a shame and um to sign the petition Go sign the petition, which we'll link we in have the show notes. Show notes. Yep. And uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but moving moving swiftly on to the person who we've just sort of spoken about and and is from Open, the organisation. Co-founder. Um, yeah. The co-founder Brett will be joining us after our tiny break.
2: He is, is amazing. I can't wait. Yeah. To um, how relevant that they've kept doing amazing stuff since we've spoken to them and it's like just Indeed. all lined up nicely. About Every
1: that? time I see him in the news, I'm like, ooh, what what, what hard truths has he dropped yeah. this time?
2: He's all, he's all about those hard truths. It's brilliant.
1: Yeah. And we'll be introducing some of those hard truths in just a moment.
2: We sure will. Okay. Break time. Yes. Okay. In a bit. In a bit.
1: Today, we are thrilled to be joined by a co-founder and executive director of the organization of Polyamory and Ethical Non-Monogamy, aka OPEN, Brett Chamberlain. Brett, welcome
0: to the show.
2: Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We're very excited to have you. Uh, We've heard you on other podcasts and we're like aware of some of the work that Open does and I'm sure our audience uh, is as well. Um, So it's nice to just dig into some of the work that you're doing. I suppose to start with, as Richard mentioned, um, organization of polyamory, ethyl or monogamy is the acronym is OPEN, uh, which is also pretty cool. I think as someone. How who, did
1: that happen? That
2: is. <laughs> what
1: are the odds? It's perfect. It's <laughs>
2: perfect <to laughs> it works really well, you know, yeah. like all the words just do oh, yeah, fit yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. You say on the website, and you've told us previously that you, you're um, one of the co-founders, and that this organization was founded in early 2022. So just to start with love to hear a little bit about how Open came to be, how you were involved and how you were a co-founder and just sort of like the general origin story, if you will.
0: Absolutely. So let me tell that it's sort of as my personal story. um, And that is that I've been doing organizing and activism for really my whole life, um, starting as a high school anti-war activist, continuing through with political organizing in college, where I had the opportunity to be at the front lines of the Occupy Wall Street movement, and after graduating college in 2013, I really began my career in the environmental sector, um, founding my first environmental nonprofit. And I moved out to the Bay Area, um, Bay Area of California, in 2016 for another job in the environmental sector. But when I moved to the Bay Area, surprise, surprise, I started finding myself really integrated, increasingly involved in the Bay Area polyamory and sex positive scenes, which You know, here are fairly overlapping, although certainly in in other communities and for other folks, those are our distinct identities and distinct practices. Um, And I came to find just real joy and fulfillment and connection and personal growth in that space. But I was also surprised to find out how many of my friends and my peers, even in really progressive communities like the Bay Area, had to hide their non-monogamous identity. Um, mm-hmm. from their employer from their family because of the stigma and discrimination that's so persistent so maybe they were a public school teacher maybe they worked at a, a hospital system that was run by a religious institution and they were afraid of losing their job mm-hmm. of being denied housing because the they, they were multi-family um, a multi-partner family and I can't help but apply a political lens to the things that I do and get involved in and examining the political aspects of the non-monogamous identity, it seemed that there was an opportunity for more advocacy in this space. There's some really phenomenal leaders that were already doing great work, but there was an opportunity for a large organization um, like OPEN to really help bring some new energy and some new capacity into this world. So I started having some great conversations with um, friends, with peers, with other folks that take an organizational lens or a political lens uh, to non-monogamy. And I quit my job at the end of 2021. I left behind my role in the environmental movement and my salary in healthcare. And <laughs> yeah. I decided to take a bit of a gamble and start putting this project together. Um, so worked with a couple of co-founders and some really great advisors, assembled a fantastic board of directors, and we publicly launched the organization, um, April of 2022. So that makes us as of time of recording, just about 18 months old. So we're still a young organization, but there's just so much energy and momentum in this space that I feel really excited about the direction that we're heading.
1: Wow. hundred percent. Yeah. It's actually like even less time than, um, me and Siobhan have been open at all. Yeah. So it's, and that's kind of amazing to me, like, and I still yeah. feel
2: relatively new to, like quite new to it still sometimes like Sometimes yeah I'm sometimes like, we feel like babies new to it.
1: which in a way we are I suppose.
2: Um just actually on the momentum that you mentioned just there how do you do you relate or do you connect any of the momentum to um the pandemic in any way um a lot of the people that we've spoken to previously have said that they've noticed since the pandemic that there's been a huge up upri- uprising <laughs> uprising a huge oh <laughs> <Hell> yeah um, <laughs> maybe maybe so a huge sort of growth in people being public about non monogamy but and, and maybe that's because more people are trying it but just wondering whether in your experience there you, you there are any connectors there or or whether that's more just anecdotal
0: yeah, I I think so. First of all, I love the non-monogamy uprising. That's
2: a great.
0: <laughs> <story>. Yes. <laughs> oh my word. But I do think, you know, it's it's interesting. I'd love to see more kind of research mm. or um, you know, I I think this is a question that could could be answered um some way, but I I have heard this point come up a number of times, and I, I do think it lands, right? That as some people have described it, people locked in with their partner um, and they realized that maybe they needed a little bit more diversity in their relationships. Um, but I think more so it's the fact that when we all had to shelter in place and step out of being in contact with our community, with our, our friends, our family, even our, our our fellow office workers, people really came to appreciate how important human connection is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And there was a willingness or a need really to step into a more expansive mode of connecting a mode of building community and that the, the sort of final piece of this i i think is that there was this sort of shattering of our understanding of the way that things were and the way that things should be that came along with the pandemic and that of course impacted the whole domain of, of a whole range of domains mm. but i think it supported this broader you know, very longstanding, ongoing cultural progression where we are starting to, I think, take more agency around creating the world, creating culture, creating value systems that are not just, you know, given to us from on high or the things that we're doing because that's how our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents did it. Uh, but in the words of the the late great anthropologist, David Graeber, the world is what we make it. And mm. so similarly, our relationships mm. are what we make it. So in mm. those moments of real, challenge and loss and disruption there's an opportunity to build something new and I think the non-monogamy space is just one of the domains in which people are really stepping into that mm-hmm.
2: yeah I think you're so right I think there's so much change it's uh, it's just interesting that
1: well I think as well when when people's day-to-day lives are disrupted uh so is their way of thinking I think and that and that can lead people down yeah. different lines of uh, inquiry within themselves that the and in this case that uh, just so happened to be their relationships. I guess the the, the people who were immediately around them, all the people who were absent because of the pandemic, it makes them kind of reflect on that. Yeah,
2: yeah, so true. Interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. Back to open. Yeah. <laughs> so there's sort of two overarching areas of work that we'd like to sort of just get you to chat through a little bit uh, so people have a bit more of a an understanding if they haven't heard about you before like the sorts of areas that you're sort of working in and agitating in so if you could just tell us about those there's like the political organization sort of legislative advocacy work on one side and then you've got the cultural awareness of work on the other sort of the, on the other pillar um but yeah i'd love for you to just sort of tell us a bit more about about those as well and some of the areas that you're working in
0: yeah absolutely so our mission is to advance cultural acceptance and legal rights for non-monogamous families and relationships so those really are the two big domains of our work on the cultural acceptance side it's really about bringing more visibility to the non-monogamy space it's about pushing back against the stigmas and the stereotypes and the misunderstandings that people have and really helping to advance an understanding that non-monogamous relationships are relationships like any others. They're families like any others. They might look a little bit different, but ultimately it's about people coming together in authentic connection, about supporting one another, loving one another. So it really is nothing quite so strange. And I think that with regard to acceptance, you know, as people see more and more non-monogamous people in their life, they realize that they have friends or co-workers or members of their faith congregation who are non-monogamous, Um, it can stop being quite so exoticized and really just understood as being like any other relationship. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of that is the legal rights. And this is really the I've been saying meat and potatoes, but I want to replace that with like a more vegetarian friendly. So maybe I'll say it's the tofu and broccoli of our work, <laughs> um, although it doesn't quite in the same way. Nice.
2: I love that so much. <laughs>
0: the idea is that um, our financial, legal, social systems are really built to enforce the primacy of one type of relationship, mm-hmm. the monogamous relationship. Mm-hmm. And still, you know, uh, largely the heterosexual relationship, despite many of the gains that have been made in that domain, there's still a lot of cultural baggage that is yet to be unwound. And so this is about ensuring that non-monogamous families and relationships have access to the same rights and the same protections that are afforded to monogamous partnerships, particularly married spouses. So this shows up across a number of domains, but one of the areas that we're really focusing in at the start is on non-discrimination. So in the U.S., and I suspect, according to my research, really much of the world relationship structure, i.e. non-monogamy, is not a protected identity. So you can be fired from your job, you can be denied housing, denied immigration status, even deprived of the custody of your child, all based on the way that you structure your private intimate relationships. And so one of our core interventions has been advancing this non-discrimination legislation to allow people to be open about their relationships, right, to advance that cultural side of things without having to worry about the legal implications, without having to worry about losing their job, so those two pieces of work really go hand in hand, right? You have to advance the legal protections for it to be safe for people to be open about their identities, but you also have to have people being open about their identities and advancing this visibility and understanding in order to advance the legal rights.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. and that is so challenging, isn't it? Because it's like there's a huge risk about being open about your relationship structure and like which, and I say all the time that we are so lucky that we can do this podcast safely Mm -hmm. Um, and that not everyone in the in our community in the non-monogamous community has that privilege and that that yeah that privilege but at the same time you need people to talk about it so it's like a very much chicken and the egg situation right
1: yeah um I, i i mean we've spoken a few times as well though before about um sort of I guess, coming out, if you will, um, about your relationship dynamic and structures. And uh, one thing I will say, and I mean, I've said it before, but I'll say it again, is when it comes to discussing my sexuality versus discussing my relationship uh, dynamic or orientation, I I still feel so much more confident in being open about the former. Mm -hmm. I don't mind telling people that i'm not straight you know Yeah, same. (laughs) it doesn't bother me at all but because i know there's people out there that will understand it i know that it's protect i'm a protected you know it's a protected group Mm -hmm. but when it comes to relationship stuff i'm always worried about what the reaction is going to be um and i guess that's kind of where that cultural awareness work as well kind of overlaps a little bit right because it's, it's not just protected, being protected legally, it's also kind of spreading the word that this is, uh, this is a, a, a totally valid and normal uh, way of doing relationships, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, what, so I guess mo- kind of moving in that vein of thought, like why is it important, would you say, for non-monogamous people and family to be represented and acknowledged in, in the law and are there, are there any examples of this type of representation that you know of?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And before I turn to that, though, Rich, let me pick up what you were just, just laying down. Sure. Um, and <laughs> I, I think, you know, you, you alluded to something really interesting. This is something that's come up in many conversations and some of the survey responses we've collected from our annual community survey of the non-monogamous population. And that is that, as a few people have put it, you know, my my family was totally accepting of me when I came out as as gay or as bi or as a lesbian. But when I told them I was also non-monogamous, that was a bridge too far, Mm. and they cut contact or disown me or whatnot. Mm. Um, So it's a testament, I think, to the decades of really valiant organizing that's happened within the LGBTQ space, or as it was first called when it was kind of kicking off in the 60s and 70s, the gay liberation movement. And luckily, there's a really wonderful blueprint that we can follow there, which again, does emphasize cultural acceptance or visibility and acceptance as well Mm -hmm. as the legal rights. Um, But one of the strategies there was, again, just helping people see that these stereotypes about gay men in particular were not true. Um, And so there were times when people would go door to door and say, hey, I'm your neighbor. I'm a queer man. I'm, you know, I'm not going to abduct your children or anything. Um, I'm a person just like you. And I'd love to get to know you and help you get to know me. So, you know, we are both leveraging that playbook, and critically, we're also building off of the incredible work that's being done, right? So the non-monogamy movement stands on the shoulders of giants, not just the many non-monogamous advocates that have been organizing in this space for many years, but also um, the LGBTQ movement that's done so much to advance a cultural understanding of freedom to uh, freedom of, of, of expression, freedom of relationship identity, um, but we just, you know, that that conversation has happened and is continuing to happen around sexual orientation, and now we're bringing another piece into the pie, we're, we're bringing another piece into the puzzle. And so, yeah, people don't understand it, right? Like, we hear a lot of the same, and this kind yeah. of gets back to the, to the legal rights thing. Um, we hear a lot of experiences of people that echo the experiences that LGBTQ folks had, mm-hmm. um, you know, decades ago, and, and yeah. certainly still today. For example, right, if you're in the workplace and you happen to mention um, that you're non-monogamous, people, you, know, might, you might get reported for sexual harassment, right? Because people think either mm-hmm. A, you're talking about your sex life in the workplace, or B, you're only mentioning this because you want to date me, which, of course, was the exact same thing that um, queer people experienced yeah. in the workplace, yeah. right? If you mm-hmm. mention you're gay, while well, you're talking about your sex life or you're mm-hmm. hitting on me. Uh, and so it points to to the need to just kind of continue to move the move the ball forward, continue to push the line, continue to build on the work of the LGBTQ movement uh, and advance the cultural conversation by bringing this new piece in. yeah, yeah, yeah hundred percent
2: totally. like when i I sort of came out as bisexual around the same time that we opened our relationship. so I had a really. Like an interesting, fun little sort of test I could do where I would sort of mention, oh, we're a broken down relationship and I'm also going to date women, guys. I was presenting people with two new bits of information at the okay. same time. So it was like a, a fun little test. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> nobody asked me about my bisexuality. No one cared. Everyone mm-hmm. was like, and as you say, like, I'm so lucky because like I stand on the shoulders of people who have done that work. No one cared. No one asked those questions it was just mm. such an interesting sort of response that i was not necessarily expecting so
1: and it's it's kind of a shame as well cuz if you just it, like you don't get the opportunity to just enjoy the fact that you can say that thanks to those giants you can say that you're mm-hmm. bisexual and and it not be a big deal uh, because you you're having to deal with the questions and the sort of stigma the you know the the misconceptions you know related to the non-monogamy side of things so mm-hmm. on the one hand it's like oh great look how far we've come Absolutely. amazing not yeah. that we're all the way there by no means but socially speaking i think that we are we've we've you know there's i wouldn't say necessarily we but like you know strides have been made in that department but those same strides n- need to be made in the non-monogamy world now um so yeah yeah I guess what I'm trying to say is there's like a... There's a little sort of silver lining in there that unfortunately maybe you missed out on a bit. But, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. But, oh, no, uh, I was grateful for that too because yeah. I didn't want to have to... I was like, yeah, I was yeah, going to yeah, talk about yeah. one thing, guys. Like, I, yeah, I don't yeah. want to have to get into it too much. But yeah, is there and as you mentioned earlier about um, like the legal sort of there's not a protected category in the u.s it's not we're in the uk and it's not um in Mm. the uk either in terms of like um in the equality act which is the big thing that they talk about over here um are you aware of anywhere else in like the sort of the western world or in your work that has legal protections or is that like not something that exists yet
0: not that I'm aware of, you know, I should note that our our focus is a little bit more on the U.S. Just, you know, as yeah, an American, yes. this is where we sort of have a cultural understanding and, mm-hmm. and, and legal access. Um, what I do know, which is quite interesting, is that the non-monogamy sort of organized political movement, as I understand it, is more developed in the U.S. And one of the reasons for that is our total absence of a social safety net, which makes it far more important, for example, if you're in a mm. non-monogamous relationship, to be on your partner's health insurance whereas in other countries uh, particularly in Western Europe where there are more robust social safety nets, it's slightly less important if your non-monogamous partnership is legally recognized because you all have access to the same you know universal health care and, and so on totally. um, So there is an interesting greater need I think Absolutely. in the. US to really really advance this uh, this work.
2: Yeah no mm-hmm. that makes total sense. And there's so many other things as well, like obviously healthcare is a, is a big deal and and super important, and um, as particularly in the US as we we said we said, but there's so many other benefits that can be sort of had from legal recognition. Obviously, yeah. I just and I think you know a lot of a lot of that comes down to I suppose something that's coming to mind as we're talking is about sort of cultural beliefs and changing that. Um, I mean. <laughs> Where do we start? Like, how do you, I mean, this is a good other person to ask about this, but it just feels like it's such a big job. And, you know, as you mentioned, it does help helpful when people know us. I feel like the people that are in our lives are like super supportive, understandable, understand us, realize that like we're just the same people. We've just like got a different relationship structure. But outside of that little bubble, it's quite daunting, right? Mm -hmm. So like, where do we start when it comes to sort of shifting those cultural beliefs?
0: Yeah. So as you know, really one of the first places to start is with the personal. And, and I do want to acknowledge here, as, as you noticed, noted as well, that not everyone is in a position to be open about their identity. So if you live in a more, you know, culturally conservative context, um, if you don't have access to social support or community outside of your, your family of birth, if you risk losing your job, you know, don't go and do that, don't, don't lose your job over this. Um, it's important to, to, of course, take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. But if you are in a position where you have supportive family, where you have um, uh, protections at work, um, if you feel safe and comfortable doing so, opening up about your non-monogamous identity really is one of the best things that you can do. Just Just have the conversation answer people's questions share a bit with them and just really help them understand you know potentially be prepared for the pushback be prepared for the the questions that you know people misunderstand right when i was talking to my mom about my own non-monogamous identity we're in the car and we had discussing it and then there was maybe 10 or 15 minutes and just silence and then she just says so it's a sex thing (laughs) 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 yeah Uh, i don't know is your is your 40 year relationship with my dad like just a sex thing no so um (laughs) So opening up about your identity with, with your family and friends is really yeah. a great thing that you can do. Mm. Um, and then from there, really, it's about the, the institutional question, right? So if mm-hmm. you are somebody that um, is involved in local politics, that feels that you have a, a progressive city council or, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the, the exact equivalent of that in the in the U.K., um oh. so, well we have councils See, council. we do have but then like the, a borough? they or tend a to be
1: boroughs council? or yeah yeah exactly so we do have council and we have council elections and
0: things like that so yeah, yeah. so
2: i think yeah
0: so yeah. that could be a great place to to um to really start advancing these protections um so far in the u.s the city of somerville massachusetts became the first city in the u.s um in march of this year 2023 to pass non-discrimination protections and those um protect uh, the the way the the bill is written is uh, people based on family and relationship structure. So the relationship structure obviously accounts for non-monogamous folks, it also reinforces existing protections for queer relationships, but the family structure bit also picks up a variety of non-traditional family structures, um, including multi-generational families, blended families with step parents and step children, single parents by choice, Um, And we're working on passing some additional legislation in a few other cities in the U.S. Um, So if that's something that you're interested in, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to open. We can provide a variety of resources and support and some model legislation to work on passing those ordinances. And then another space that people can work on advancing this conversation can be in the workplace, right? Our workplaces are um, again, particularly in the U.S. where we you know, have 40 hours of work a week or more and only two, two weeks of vacation typically, you spend a lot of your life there. People have a lot of relationship through there. It's a big part of people's mm-hmm. identities. So that can be, but it's also a space where people can really be exposed to those risks, exposed to that harm. So um, starting that conversation in your workplace can be really valuable. And we've recently published a new resource we call our Open Workplaces Toolkit, which is designed to help non-monogamous professionals um, advance inclusion and protections for themselves and their their non-monogamous coworkers within their workplace. So that's a resource that you can find on our website. And it's got some tips about how to ensure that you're safe if you choose to open up at work. And if you're an employer or an employee that wants to advocate for this, how you can make your workplace more accepting of non-monogamous identities, just as many employers have worked to become more accepting of LGBTQ identities.
1: Nice. Mm -hmm. Um, Just just uh, backtracking to what you said about, um, you know, if you're in the position to do so, um, talking about it with with your family and friends and things like that. It reminds me of uh, and once again, there's another parallel here with uh, the wider queer community is um, the I can't I don't have the exact figure in front of me, but the the, when it comes to uh, people supporting trans rights. Um, they are far more likely to do so, and I don't have, like I said, I don't have the exact, but it's significantly more likely to support uh, sort of legislation or, uh, or, or or just in general um, supporting trans people if they know someone that is trans. And I'm guessing that line of logic or that line of, I'm guessing there's a correlation there with many other different identities and different sort of uh, uh, aspects within life itself so that's really interesting um that you know the first thing that we can do is is basically the same thing that we can do when we're advocating for other identities and, uh, other minorities etc
0: yeah, I'm glad you raised that because this is a fairly well understood social phenomenon. Right? Yeah. You're far yeah. more likely to accept any minority identity if you know somebody that holds that identity, yeah. um, because then you really understand them as a human being. You can see that the perhaps you know mass media stereotypes and myths are not true. So this is true. With the trans movement. This is true with the, the gay rights movement. This is true in the civil rights movement for mm-hmm. racial justice. Um, and it did show up too in some of the research that open has done, uh, referencing again our community survey. We asked people if they had experienced stigma and discrimination in a variety of different domains. So healthcare and mental health care, housing, employment, um, community acceptance, family acceptance. And interestingly, when we looked across how long people had been identified as non-monogamous, the longer they were non-monogamous, the more likely they were to experience these various forms of stigma and discrimination. However, the exception was in community acceptance and family acceptance. Mm. There, the longer they had been non-monogamous, the less likely they were to report this, which to me suggests that as you are open and in conversation about your non-monogamous identity, people can come to understand and ultimately accept it. Mm.
2: That is so interesting because, yeah, it's like makes sense if there's if you're coming into contact with more people as time goes on, there is a higher like likelihood that you might be discriminated against. But it's just so interesting to hear the flip side of that with the family side and the friend side. And like, I mean, that is certainly my experience. Um, I was
1: going to say it, where so, like yeah,
2: I when we first opened our relationship, I was like not really there for it. To be honest, I like wasn't gonna. I wasn't like on board. I was on board from the get go, but I wasn't like. Enthusiastic oh, yeah, about I was the idea. Say. <laughs> um, <laughs> it obviously, I right. am now, but it just was a journey. But you know, it was like a, some like with all of our friends, that, my friends that I just sort of told. It was like front page news for maybe a month, and then as time went <laughs> on, everyone else had stuff happening on in their lives, and I think also my friends and family members were able to see, oh, you are happy and your relationship is surviving, and things seem normal, and you're still you. And so I would absolutely say, from my own perspective, that's certainly a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but doesn't mean I don't get any less nervous like telling someone new, because for that exact reason. So that's just so interesting.
1: Yeah, and the, and also um, maybe this is something that some people, someone might might benefit from hearing this, and might might make them feel a bit better. If you're in the early stages, if you're the person that's come to your partner and said, "Hey, I'm polyamorous, or I want to do monog- monogamy," particularly if it's if you feel it's your orientation. I mean, in, in a way, Siobhan was like that first person for me that <laughs> yes. I then told, and she had a lot of those misconceptions. I mean, yes. even I probably had some deeply ingrained misconceptions, mm. but Siobhan certainly had those and was like, you know, distraught at one point, right? And
2: I did not hold back in throwing out some, not even microaggressions, they were just full-on aggressions.
1: Full on aggressions. Um, <laughs> you know? And, and, and 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 I mean, yeah, I mean, if you're in that position now and you're worried about what your spouse's family might feel like their are friends, et cetera, um, I, can, I can certainly offer you the comfort and the no- knowledge that it certainly got a lot better for me. And I'm sure it would for you as yeah. well. So, yeah, and the I exposure mean, thing is incredibly important.
2: Speaking of sort of coming out to people and telling people, I mean, what do you think? Do you think there are benefits to that non-monogamy can offer the world at large? and um, We've sort of discussed on the podcast a little bit before about, the connections between capitalism and our relationships and the promotion of connection in polyamory or non-monogamy over concepts like consumption. I mean, do you have thoughts on on any of that?
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked about this, because this is what really excites me, right? You know, at the surface level, the work that Open is doing, which is, of course, super important, is about Ending that stigma and discrimination, and creating more acceptance for non-monogamous families and relationships. But at a deeper level, and what really gets me fired up, I do think that there's something really socially transformative about non-monogamy for the world at large. Right. So the way that I often think about expressing this um, is based on this uh, Einstein quote, which is apocryphal. Right. It's not not actually an Einstein quote, but um, uh, <laughs> it is that. You know, I fear that our technology has surpassed our humanity, right? So for all of the evolutions we see in our technology, all the incredible things that we're now able to do with AI and self-smartphones and so on, we haven't seen a ton of progression in our social technologies, right? We're still living in social systems in family systems and community systems that really have not changed much at all since the industrial revolution Mm. with, of course, some very noticeable, notable exceptions with regard to civil rights, with regard to sexual liberation and so on. But for the most part, the kind of meta structure, the overarching structure really hasn't changed that much. We've seen some, some tinkering around the edges. Um, Sorry, I actually shouldn't minimize the, the work that has been done, but, but I do mean the structural point hasn't, hasn't massively transformed. Um, And so I view non-monogamy as being a social technology, right? Or a set of technologies that can really help people connect and cooperate and communicate much better. We can create a world that is more attuned to consent, um, to authentic connection. We can push back against this epidemic of loneliness that we've seen. We can um, help people create really robust, expansive family structures or community structures, if, if you want to call it your chosen family or your polypod or whatnot, but t- spaces where people can look out for one another, provide mutual aid, provide emotional care, um, really invest in one another's growth. I think those are all things that we desperately, desperately need as a society right now. And that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm really so excited to see this movement continue to grow. Now, that is not to say that we're gonna try and transform everyone non-monogamous, but the idea is that you have you know, even 5%, conservatively 5% of American adults, probably the same in many other you know, English-speaking nations, certainly, um, who identify as non-monogamous, and that's probably a very conservative guess, you know, the question is, what might the world look like if 5 or 10% of people are that much more attuned to consent and connection? I really think that it can make a pretty significant difference in the world, and that we have a lot to teach, even our, mono- our monogamous friends and peers, too.
1: Mm-hmm. It makes me think of The Village, and I don't mean the 2004 movie by M. Night Shyamalan. I mean, <laughs> I mean uh, the idea that it takes a village to raise children, right, the next generation, and it, it, it's very, it's very um, communitarian uh, without necessarily not being cosmopolitan, if you sort of gather what I mean by that. Um, it's, it's very, this idea of, of centering uh, our social lives around a community again, which is something that I feel is somewhat lost on this very neoliberal world that we live in now. I feel like everyone is very much kind of like a potential enemy rather than a potential friend, or, or at least that's how I feel a lot of the world seems <laughs> to, to, you know what I mean? Um, so this whole idea of, yeah, uh, of, you know, people living in, in I guess, more, I guess, polycules or what, you, you alluded to various different names that people might call them, but I quite like it because I think it just means that, it's not just one other person that is offering a family something it's not just you know two people and then their children etc it's lots of different people with different experiences that are different in lots of ways that are providing lots of more different things <laughs> to, to to a family unit or a uh or a community so um
0: yeah i really like that yeah Yeah, you know, because we've we've built a society that is really built around the the nuclear family, right? Married parents with kids, but that was always a bit of a mirage, right? In in the U.S., and again, this is probably fairly consistent across other kind of comparable nations, Um, uh, to whatever extent there are nations comparable to our weird, weird country. But um, (laughs) forgive me that all my statistics are U.S. based. But regardless, only twenty percent of households in the U.S. are actually a nuclear family of married parents with kids. So this is really the, the. quote, unquote, foundation of our whole social system. And yet it's, it's a mirage. And we haven't really offered people much that's very different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's led to this moment of crisis. Um, I'm sure, Rich, you're familiar as a, a poli-sci person with Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, which is like a famous political science text that looks at um, the, the spread of loneliness and the degradation of um, social systems that allow people to create shared meaning, to solve complex problems together. And we've seen this really, really crumble and degrade, again, in, in the U.S. and in much of the Western world, as we're seeing a move away from, from, you know, sorts of community networks or village models that you referenced, or even, you know, faith-based communities, social um, clubs like your Elks Lodge or whatnot, even bowling leagues, hence the title of the book. And that leads to real challenges for society. It really degrades our ability to understand that other people, even if they have different opinions, are people just like us and be in connection and cooperation with them. And so I think non-monogamy can be part of, again, not to be prescriptivist, that this is for everyone, but it is a really important part of building a new model, a new way of shaping society that allows for people to be in that type of connection and cooperation and communication and care and compassion and compersion and so on with one another. And I just, we, we need it. We need it so, so badly.
2: Yeah, I can't. I mean, I think you've just said it so well. And I love that you said earlier that, you know, we're not here to com- you know convert anyone to non-monogamy or to, you know, force them to be at, in a certain relationship structure or to... say that monogamy isn't working or isn't good or you know when we're not saying any of those things it's certainly about offering an alternative and I love that you said that and that's such a um, a really sort of just a really Helpful way to put it, and I think as well, you know, just like anything else, and you're living your life, and you think, oh, I'm gonna take a little bit for, of what that person does, and a little bit of that person does, and I learned this from that person. And if I think about like the way I live my life now, and some of the things that I do, like staying in touch with friends overseas, like one of my friends, um, had taught me how to do that because she's just so good at it, and I noticed that, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep in touch like that friend. And and so you know, there's so many examples of how we pick and choose and learn from other people and it's it's just funny that sometimes you know when looking at different styles of relationships or the way of ways of interacting with each other it's a little bit harder to get there with with sometimes with with those sorts of more emotional potentially uh things but i love the idea of of this being a at least even just some elements of non-monogamy to some people is like an alternative um to what may or may not be working for them so yeah super interesting
1: yeah um, so if, if people want to get involved with the work that Open does uh, how would one do that <laughs>
0: Yes, I'd love for people to visit our website where they can learn a lot more about our work. Um, That's open-love.org, open-love.org. That is the downside of having two really common four-letter words uh, in your organization, uh, name The URL, (laughs) that you end up having to put a dash in the middle. Um, I still cringe a little bit every time I touch it, so I type it. So if anyone has a quarter million dollars that they want for the open love, no dash URL, um, get in touch. Uh, Anyways. (laughs) That will be
1: our first fundraiser as a podcast. (laughs) the open
0: love URL fund. So anyway, I'm distracting myself, but it's, it's open dash love, open love.org. Um, head on over. Um, you can uh, follow us on, uh, Twitter, rest in peace, formerly X, uh, or formerly Twitter. Um, I was going to say, I wish it was that way around. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, connect us on Facebook, on Instagram. We also have a community discord where people are chatting. We have weekly discussion prompts. There's also channels for people that are community leaders. Um, There's also a channel for our Open Workplaces Initiative, too. So if you're a non-monogamous professional or interested in chatting with other folks about advancing some of that inclusion in your workplace. um, But the best way is to just join our email list, um, get our updates, get invitations for the various workshops we do, for the free peer support we provide, uh, and updates about our continuing legislative advocacy efforts. So one more time, that's open-love.org, or we're at openlove.org on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram.
2: Um, so, we like to play a game with some of our guests. <laughs> we have a few different segments. This one is my favourite one because of the name.
1: Polypop culture slash Poppy Amory, uh, because we could never decide. <laughs> because Poppy we, couldn't, Mary, because we couldn't
2: decide. So, mm. And Plus essentially, this, we yeah. like to sort of discuss this particular segment's about representations of non-monogamy in pop culture and uh, we noticed that open uh released a statement about the riverdale ending recently and we just thought we might like just sort of chat with you a little bit about that sort of representation when we saw it in the media and on social media we went and sort of watched that episode i'd never seen riverdale before yeah we watched Um,
1: like the tour i mean we
2: but we wanted to watch we wanted to see what it was all about about before we talked about it and we thought that open statement was really strong and sort of just sort of really highlighted the problems with it so um Yeah. yeah we'd love to sort of talk a little bit about a little just, bit about that
1: C- can I also just say you, yeah. don't, you don't know this oh. um, just because I think it's just relevant um, because I, I have a feeling this this is going to be somewhat a negative uh, critique of, uh, of of the Riverdale ending um, there is uh, a much better albeit small um, representation um, that I saw recently that I will throw in at the end and maybe we can kind of get your gauge your thoughts on that too um just quickly um just just to sweeten the the uh the ending a bit so Riverdale but yeah I mean just like
2: yeah what were your thoughts and what was open sort of thoughts and position on that
0: and how do you think they could have done a better job
2: oh yeah good question
0: yeah so Riverdale um for folks that aren't familiar Riverdale is a a television show on the the network the CW it's originally based kind of loosely on the the Archie and Jughead comics um but I don't know, maybe devolved is a little unfair, but it went um, in interesting directions. I understand over the course of the the many uh, (laughs) seasons of the the show with supernatural elements and all all sorts of wildness Um, in the very, very final episode of the show, the the series finale, um, uh, uh, they revealed that four of the characters, four of the main characters have been in a polyamorous quad the whole time. Um, Shocking. And um, so, you know, wasn't there like seven seasons?
2: yeah I think like, <laughs> yes
0: right <laughs> so
1: seven seasons and no one knows that this is the case that's insane yeah and so uh, you know
0: oh. i don't i don't watch the show although i did familiarize myself with it before yeah. commenting mm-hmm. um but i had seen the you know my holly emery and non news alerts were of course going off with after it yeah. aired so I, I kind of saw it and was aware of it but you know didn't think a ton of it um uh we got a uh, email, though, from a reporter at TMZ, which, again, if folks aren't familiar, is like a celebrity and entertainment gossip website. Yeah. <laughs> and they requested a comment. And so I thought, OK, well, they're reaching out to a whole variety of non-monogamy organizations. And they're going to write an article about the movement response. And so I, I gave a comment. And then the article comes out and it was polyamory group group slams Riverdale for finale. And it was just me and my quote in the article. So I was like, oh, it's like that. And then, of course, from there, it got picked up by BuzzFeed, by Fox yeah. News, by Breitbart, by a whole bunch. Oh, all the good um, so ones. It was a really interesting learning moment <laughs> for me that, you know, one, responding to depictions of non monogamy in the popular media is actually a really, really great tactic for engaging in the conversation, right? Yeah. Mm. Um, but also be really careful when you're responding to quote requests from TMZ. Yeah. Um, so that's the backstory. <laughs> But the actual oh substance of the quote itself and the, gen, the general thrust of my response is that, you know, non-monogamy is not something that really should be just thrown in last minute for a shocking twist, right? If you're going to depict non-monogamous characters on in media, you really should show them and their relationship as fully fleshed out. Um, you know, I think it's kind of akin to JK Rowling infamously declaring <laughs> that Dumbledore was gay after the show, right? It's just like kind of <laughs> crass, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I um, knew exactly the, what you were going to say. Yep. Ugh. So... We, you know, I I reference as well, we have a resource we put out that you can find on our blog called the Non-Monogamy Media Guide, and it's effectively a rubric to help people assess depictions of non-monogamous relationships in the media to try and get a sense of, is this a really authentic and thoughtful depiction, or is this Um, just out there for shock value, is it one-dimensional? And so it asks questions like, you know, first of all, is the relationship actually consensual for all parties involved, right? If you label one of your characters as polyamorous, what they're really doing is cheating, you get an F. Um, Is there an identification of commitment with the relationships, or are they all just flings and hookups? Mm -hmm. Um, Do, is non-monogamy depicted as morally neutral, or is it something that, you know, evil and, you know, a seedy character does? Um, Do you actually, and this one is critical for for Riverdale too, do you actually see the work, right? Do you actually see the people in a non-monogamous relationship depicted in the media having conversations about their needs and their boundaries and their relationship agreements and so on? So those are some of the questions that we ask when looking at any depiction in the media um, like with Riverdale and unfortunately I just I think Riverdale kind of kind of failed the test.
2: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so I too. I think we
0: can all agree that that was the case.
2: And I think like it's such a shame because I feel like there is a little slowly there is a a desire maybe to have alternative relationship styles in, and represent those and I think that obviously there's always more that we can do but with you know just general media I think there is a shift towards better representation across the board and that's really important and really healthy to have and so I feel like there is like we're getting there with like the the desire but there's you can't just do it because you're like oh representation look how good we are we're like no or like as you said as a plot twist like it has to be meaningful representation and i love that there's a a test like a, a Bechdel test, but for polyamory.
1: But hopefully more stringent than the Be- Bechdel yes, test. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> um, yeah, we
0: try. I mean, the Bechdel test is famously just like one, one question, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> two, two names from the characters that have a conversation exactly. uh, that is not about a man. And unfortunately, non-monogamy is a little complicated to have just the one question. So that's why our rubric yeah. has, yes. I think, eight or so. But yeah. yeah, really glad that we have this to just kind of use as a lens. Yeah. Um, so Richard, I'm interested to hear about the the um, representation that you referenced. Oh, yes, Richard. Yes.
1: Um, I could I could tell you were very eager to hear what this is. Um, so this is... I found this one really interesting because it was very relaxed and kind of... It wasn't a huge deal made about it. Um, I would love to see... I would have loved to see a little... Seen a little bit more uh, fleshing out of it, but um, the Sex Education is a big show on Netflix. There is a, a, a moment where... One character, a non-binary person of color. Um, There is a a sort of romantically charged moment between this person and uh, a deaf person of color, uh, a deaf woman of color. And there's this moment between them, and then it's interrupted by another character who kisses kisses uh, the, the the latter person, the latter lady. It's very much sort of a moment where you're like, oh, so that moment of of romantic sort of tension was was it has been broken, and it's just like, oh, okay, never mind. But then in a scene later on, the the deaf character, so the
2: first two people that were originally, the there, first, yes, the yeah. first two
1: people say says, oh, I'm really sorry, I didn't get a chance to um, to tell you at the time, and I knew that must have been quite confusing for you, but that was my girlfriend, but. Uh, we're we're we're, non, we're ethically non-monogamous and the response is literally just oh okay cool and then very much just like not not shocked clearly this person has been exposed to that already there's lines of inquiry but it's not like defensive it's not kind of there's no there's no uh, hostility there and it's I just found it really refreshing because it was kind of like the person didn't just write this character off just because they were clearly in a relationship already. They didn't, um, They the, the lack of hostility was really refreshing. The fact it was kind of like just, they, they then asked questions sort of like, oh, okay, so you wanna, you wanna go on a date too? And it was kind of just this, it was just like, I, as I was watching it, I just felt so normalized. I felt very normalized. Like it didn't, it wasn't there for shock. Because they, they they didn't act in that, that certain way. They weren't kind of as I say, there was no hostility. It was kind of just what I would love to see in my dating life. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Do, do you see where I'm go- Where I'm coming from? Like it was. So
2: Brett, do you do you think that like that's like is that cool? Because we I mean, or do you think that we're at a stage where we need to have more sort of discussions about it so people understand it a bit more? Like, I'm just curious about, yeah, and, you know, you haven't is, seen it. So if you're not comfortable commenting, that's yeah, also yeah. fine. Because <laughs> no, this was, fine, you, you know. can only
1: go based on what I've told you. And yeah. as I did say, yeah. I said that I would have loved to have seen it fleshed out a little bit more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And um, I definitely agree, right? That having characters that just respond to non-monogamy, you know, fairly neutrally, just as, you know, a, a fact of life or just a way that people do relationships is refreshing, right? Because of course, as we know, right, underpinning this whole conversation is that popular culture is one way that people kind of get taught how to act, right? So seeing characters, perhaps characters that you admire or identify with, responding, you know, fairly neutrally to non-monogamy help reinforces the idea that this is not something to be shocked or outraged or scandalized by. So on that level, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, I think what sticks out to me, and this is, you know, to be clear, I don't want to be the, like, you know, um, armchair critic poo pooing everything, but for the interest of this conversation, allow me to just note kind of two yes. things that stick out to me. The first is, um, and I suspect other folks in the audience will be nodding along at this: the time to tell somebody that you are in a non-monogamous relationship is before the hookup, not after. <laughs> um, so yeah. that perhaps could have been could have been handled better by that character. And well, then I mean, finally... well, nothing
1: did happen to be fair. But still, oh, I see. Okay, nothing actually I mean, happened. It was kind but of just.
2: Still, if you're having like a a charged moment
1: oh well i just mean that, that there was clearly uh feelings sort of stirring up in the scene no one did anything no one acted on them it was kind of like they were just getting along really really well and it's kind of like there's a there's a although i do actually now come to think of it i think there was a there was a kind of but will they won't they kiss kind of thing yes
0: yes fair, Sorry, enough. Go fair on. enough so yep. the
2: first one the first thing you were going to say is yes. that yeah
0: yeah, so that's the first one. And this the second one, and again, you know, not having seen the show, but it sounds from the way that you're describing it, like it little, may have been like a little bit more of a sort of salacious moment, kind of will they, won't they kiss or hook up sort of thing, as opposed to let's go on a date, you know, Um, so it's, it's that framing of non-monogamy still within the context principally of of a sexual practice, Mm. um, or is sort of principally a sexy thing. But again, I honestly, like, as I say, I haven't seen the show, although I'm familiar with it. That's also, you know, it's called sexual education. So it may be appropriate for the context of the show, but just the sort of general point is that, you know, seeing non-monogamy as a relationship practice first, um, and sex certainly a dimension of relationships, um, but shouldn't mm. necessarily be the kind of front and center thing of non-monogamy. So, you know, I, I think we're still waiting on like, what's the non-monogamous like will and grace or modern family going to mm-hmm. be the sort of depiction of a non-monogamous family or relationship that is just part of the characters <laughs> and not their, you know, central identity, not their yeah. point of being there is to be a standard for non-monogamous people. But just, this is just a way that people structure relationships. Um, so we're still waiting for that, but I think um, probably we won't have to wait too long. Yeah. Hopefully.
2: Hopefully. Hopefully. I can't wait to watch it. I'll be the
1: first to watch it, whatever it's called.
2: Um, So (laughs) thank you so much for your time and for just giving us all of your thoughts um, and the rest, really. Um, You've mentioned where everyone can find Open on socials, but is there anything else you'd like to mention in terms of resources or um, things you've got coming up? Like just that um, you think you'd like, you know, our audience to know about?
0: Uh, Yes, so we've got a couple resources on our website that could be useful to folks um, under the resources tab of our our website, which again is open-love.org. We've got a great fact sheet, so if you are preparing for a conversation with your family, with your coworkers about your non-monogamous identity, that's a really great place. You can just get some of the facts and stats. We also deal with some myths and FAQs, so it can be really helpful if you're preparing for a conversation. Um, we've got a few other resources there, we're constantly adding more. Um, also want to note the um, Day of Visibility, which will be growing into a week of visibility. This is something that Open helped launch to really just give the non-monogamous community all around the world an opportunity to come together and celebrate our identities and our values and just take up space. So that will be in July, um, the, the middle week of July. So just stay tuned there. Again, join our email list to make sure that you are catching all of that. And otherwise, just invite people to connect with us, as I say, on, on our website, open-love.org, on social media, at openlove.org, um, email us at info um, at open-love.org, and I'd love to hear from any and all of you. Awesome.
2: You can also get in touch with us yeah. at The poly Move. Podcast. I like it. Did you enjoy that transition, uh-huh. Brett? And me too. I was really proud of that I one.
1: ruined it with my with my awesome
2: you can please subscribe rate and review we like five star reviews they're our favorite so feel free to uh share those with us and uh share this episode and any other episode with friend family a polycule member a metamore a cousin okay that's enough
1: a riverdale producer put it on put, (laughs) put it on the back in the on in the background uh if you go out and leave your dogs alone um, I'm sure they'll love they'll listening love that. to us. Uh, but you can also follow us on social media, of course. We are at poly underscore podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. And threads. And threads as well. As yeah. well.
2: Um, <laughs> you can find us at our website. It's the-poly-podcast.captivate.fm. And you can email us at podcastthepolly at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Brett. It's been an absolute dream talking to you. Um, and
1: keep up the amazing work. Yeah, we appreciate it. We, we do. do.
2: Yeah, and um, thank you both. All right, guys. All right. See you next time. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.